Amen. Please remain standing and hear the word of our God back into the Gospel of John, continuing on in chapter 6. I'll be reading verses 41 through 59. These are the words of God. The Jews then complained about him, about Jesus, because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it then that he says, I have come down from heaven? Jesus therefore answered and said to them, do not murmur among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught by God. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven, that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. The Jews therefore quarreled among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? And then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven. Not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead, he who eats this bread will live forever. These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Let us pray. Most holy God, bless now the preaching of your word. Prepare hearts and minds to receive and renew your word by the power of your spirit. Bless us that we might be a blessing to this city, to those around us, ministers of the grace and truth you give. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Please be seated. Well, I hope you have Bibles with you because I'll probably be asking you to turn to a couple of places and it'd be good for you to follow this discourse that Jesus is having as we go through. We've been going through uh, uh, chapter 6 for some time now. Um, we've gone from ten to 15,000 hungry followers to a crowd, sm- uh, much smaller, I believe, finding him in Capernaum. Uh, eventually, most of those end up in a synagogue and, and the leading Jews of the synagogue are then gathered around him to what finally will be at the end of the chapter, just 12. John 6 records a shift, a winnowing of those who originally wanted to take Jesus by force and make him their king. Jesus is failing in his church planting work, in the church growth movement. He's gone for 10 to 15,000, and by the end of the chapter, he's going to be down to about 12. Who would hire him? But this is the overall theme of the chapter, the thing that Jesus wants us to understand, the things that draw crowds and the things that oftentimes winnow crowds away, winnow so-called followers of Jesus Christ away. Because what this chapter is talking about is that we are summoned to come to Jesus for who he is and not just for what he gives. Isn't it true? We are so often... um, 
We're, we're so often drawn to Christ simply because of promises that he's given, real promises, good blessings that he promises, and yet we discard coming to him, regardless of what he might give, regardless of his timing, just because we have come to realize we have been granted faith and we see that he is the son of God to be worshiped, to be bowed down before, to uh, be served with whole and zealous hearts. We are to come to Jesus for who he is and not just for what he gives. In verses 14 and 15, he departs from the crowd, a crowd that wants to make him king, wants to force him to become their king in their way. And he departs from that crowd. Now in verse 41, they are provoked by his teachings. And by 60, verse 66, most have left him. If we walk with Jesus, we need to expect something similar to happen to us within ourselves, to be tested, goaded, and eye-poked by him, bothered by him bothered by that sweet Jesus. For those the Father has given to him, he doesn't want them to die spending their lives trying to get the stuff, dissatisfied until they have, fill in the blank, I I will not be satisfied with you, Lord Jesus, until you, or if you don't, I'm not following you anymore. This is what happens to the person who comes to Christ for what he gives, and you want your bread, God, and not because of who he is. And Jesus is going to ramp up that poking in this, in this discourse, in this part of the discourse. But the reason he's doing so is because he doesn't want them to die in that dissatisfaction. He doesn't want them to die having, having walked away from him. Rather, he wants them to come to him and find in him everlasting and resurrecting eternal life. And that's what he wants for you as well. So let this passage speak to you. Let it bother you. Let it provoke and goad you to Jesus as we go through it. Verse 41, 42 again. Actually, um, if, we, if we look back just a little bit, I want you to notice what, what the last couple of verses were leading up to this. In verse 38, for I've come down from heaven, Jesus says, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. And the Jews from Capernaum, the leading Jews probably of the synagogue in Capernaum, look at Jesus, the one that they saw grow up under their midst, because that's the area that Jesus grew up in. And they say, what are you talking about? You came down from heaven. I know your mom and your dad. You you grew up right here, right around us. And they begin, it says, to grumble about him. He didn't come down from heaven. He grew up right around us. And their patience, you see, their patience with Jesus is thinning. He was was possibly going to be the one who's going to deliver them and be the the great Messiah. Instead, he, he, he pushes his own disciples away onto a boat and heads off up into a mountain departs from them all, withdraws from those who are ready to make him king. Jesus says, no, oh, not, no, not that way, not, not, not this time, not, not by your measure. He ends up back because of this miraculous trip on a boat, and then he ends up in Capernaum. And, and as he's there now, they are, what, what are you doing here? What do you mean you came down from heaven? This is the attitude that they are giving to the Son of God. They are complaining. They are murmuring before God having received bread. Sound familiar? 
Well, this is the same spirit. This is the same spirit as that displayed by those in the wilderness who complained before and after the manna was provided. Beforehand in Exodus 16, and then even afterwards as they've received the manna day after day for years and years. And then in Numbers 11, they complain again because that's all they get and they want meat now. They don't want just a bread God, they want a meat God. Followers of Christ are not to be grumblers and complainers about God's providence as we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. So the first passage I want you to turn to with me now is Philippians chapter 2 and see this um, in a little bit more context and application to what's happening in this section in Capernaum. You may, parents, have often uh, turned to this verse. It's a very good verse to to turn to, have your children memorize. In uh, Philippians chapter 2, verse 14, do all things without complaining and disputing. Do all things without grumbling and complaining, right? But I want you to notice the context here and what's going on because really it applies to all of us. The point is not just simply don't complain and don't argue. Don't grumble before God. But don't grumble before God and in his providential care for you. In fact, don't complain and grumble against God in his providential goading of you, his poking of you, his turning you, um, not giving you exactly what you want when you want. Look look at that verse in the context of of the paragraph. Um, uh, Verse 12 of chapter 2. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence... Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. God is at work in you, and he's at work in you in the, in the providential care of your life. And he says, I want you to work out your salvation as God works into you with fear and trembling, without complaining and grumbling. Next verse. Why? That you may become, verse 15, blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. I want you to be harmless and blameless children of God, and and as you walk through the providences of God, without complaining, without arguing, showing forth your trust and hope in a God who works all things to to good for, for those who love him and are called according to his purpose, he says, you will shine as lights in a perverse and dark world. Because you, you, you will have a hope and you will evidence a hope in a God who is going to work in you and work through you, oftentimes in very difficult and strenuous ways in your life. And as you do so, you'll be lights in the world. And you'll be working out a great salvation that God is working in you. This is the work of your sanctification. When we do grumble... We act like those who do not believe that God, that, that the giver of all things is right before us. Where is God? That's what, that's, what we, that's what we oftentimes do. Now, the Psalms teach us that we are to talk to God and cry out to him, God, where are you? I'm in this situation. It doesn't look like you're around. You need to wake up. But there's a way to do that that the psalmist teaches us that is not a grumbling and complaining of one lacking faith. And one of the obvious proofs of that is that the psalmist is writing by means of the Holy Spirit in almost all of the psalms also as they argue through those psalms of of asking God, of complaining to God, of crying out to God. It ends with, 
um, declarations of faith and trust and hope in him. So we, we learn how to come before him and be honest with him in our requests, but we are told not to grumble and complain about the providence that God gives you, the hard providences that God gives you, because you are instead to see that he is working in you, and you are to work out what he is working in you. But instead, instead of, we believe that the giver of all things isn't around because he's not giving what we want. And then we become, begin to become quite full of ourselves, arrogant to believe that we can determine for ourselves who we really are and who God really is. Well, if he's not going to show up, if he's not going to take care of me the way I define proper care, if he's not going to do that at this very moment, then I'm going to now define myself. And I am now going to define who and what God really is. And I'm going to redefine reality as I see it because I don't like the way God is being God. And that's what we do. And that's, that's, that's what, this, what Jesus is pointing out to them as he says, um, as he now turns to them and says, do not murmur among yourselves. Do not murmur among yourselves in verse 43. But then he dares to tell them that they won't come to him unless the Father draws them. He says, don't murmur and complain. And then he, he just kind of goads even more. He says, no one can come to me, no one, unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. You who think that you know better than God, you who think you have figured out who God is and what God is up to, you, you are so full of yourselves, and I need to, you need to know you can't even turn to the Father. You don't know who He is unless He reveals who He is to you. That is how dependent upon God that we are. He goes on in verse 45, he says, It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught by God. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. He quotes Isaiah, this little snippet from Isaiah chapter 54, and they shall all be taught by God. And you might look at that and wonder, okay, what's he getting at? Well, if you were a leading Jew in the synagogue, you would know Isaiah 54. And you would know that it's talking about the new Jerusalem and the new temple. It's talking about a restoration of Israel after a savior, a Messiah, has come and suffered for them in Isaiah 53. So turn with me to Isaiah 54 for just a moment and take a look at this because I think it helps to shine a little bit more light on what Jesus is getting at. And you're probably not as, um, as familiar with Isaiah and Isaiah 54 as these Jewish leaders would have been growing up with it all their lives as the, as the scriptures. So Jesus quotes from 54.13, and it needs to be considered in its fuller context. Um, and I'm going to use uh, uh, several verses from Isaiah 54, if you want, if you can take a look at that with me. This prophecy describes a renewed and fruitful Israel. Look at verse 1. Sing, O barren, you who have not born. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you have not labored with child. For more are the children of the desolate than the children of the married woman, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent, verse 2, and let them stretch out the curtains of your dwellings. Do not spare. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes. The, the, this this uh, prophecy is about look at how barren, how empty Israel is. And, and the picture Several, several different chapters in Isaiah pointing to a leveled and destroyed Israel land. Everyone taken in exile, it is barren. It's empty. And God says, this is where I'm going to bring forth the most children out of that. 
And then he says, in fact, you need to enlarge the tents because there's going to be so many that are going to be coming in. Verse 2. Though her home um, and temple city would have been and will have been ravaged in this prophecy, it is restored with glorious new gems. Look at verse 11 and 12. O you afflicted ones, tossed with tempest and not comforted, behold, I will lay your stones with colorful gems and lay your foundations with sapphires. I will make your pinnacles of rubies, your gates of crystals, all your walls of precious stones." where all your children shall be taught by the Lord. There's the phrase that Jesus is quoting in this new glorious temple, where all your children will be taught by the Lord and great shall be the peace of your children. So Jesus just uh, takes a part of that and says, uh, you will all be taught by the Lord. Here, it's not just you, but you and your children. For generations, this will go on now that you will be taught by the Lord directly by him, established in righteousness, we will, fully secure, we will be fully secure in the temple. Uh, verses 14 and 15, in righteousness you shall be established, you shall be far from oppression, for you shall not fear, and from terror, for it shall not come near you. Indeed, they shall surely assemble, but not because of me. Whoever assembles against you shall fall for your sake. And then finally, verse 17, a very familiar phrase, no, um, no weapon formed against you shall prosper. What's he describing? What, what is that passage describing? And how is Jesus bringing that in to his argument back in John chapter 6? Well, consider what Jesus is alluding to. He's quoting from this passage. This is New Jerusalem, New Temple language. And Jesus has said that he will be that temple. Remember back in chapter 2. Destroy the temple and I will raise it up again in three days, he said. He's the new temple. We are, those, we, we are the, the living stones, these, these beautiful stones, we're told. 1 Peter 2.5 says that we are the living stones that build up this new temple. And the beautiful picture in Revelation, chapter 21, describes the exact same um, series of stones and gems and the glory of this new temple, this, the, the, the bride of Christ, the, the new Jerusalem. In the Old Covenant, cities were particular. I know if you think of if you think of Seattle today, it's it's hard to imagine. But cities used to be considered places of refuge and safety, but places that you would go um, because you could be defended against. There were walls. There was there there were there were people there that would protect you. Okay, so cities in an Old Testament mindset that cities are a place of great security and prosperity a place where you could sell your wares, where you could, uh, you could have a business, a, a place where you'd be able to prosper. Well, when, when, um, uh, so if you keep that in mind, uh, he says that, um, Jesus says in 639, that all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day, back in verse 39. So Jesus is promising that in this temple, in him is this great security. He will lose none of you. He will lose none of those who are, who, who are in him. In this new covenant, God would put his law in the minds of his people. He would personally put the law in the minds and the hearts in a different way, Jeremiah 31. And when Peter would make his great confession, Jesus says that this revelation came directly from the Father. Now, that, that uh, uh, profession of faith that, that uh, Peter makes so uh, famously, that you're the Christ, the Son of the living God, is going to come at the end of this chapter. 
That's going to come at the end of this chapter. In Matthew, when Matthew records it, listen to what he says. Jesus answered and said to Peter, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. My Father is the one teaching you. Jesus said, unless the Father reveals me, no one comes to, to, to him. No one comes to the Father unless the Father draws him. No one comes to Christ unless, unless the Father gives that one to Christ. This, this direct work of his sovereign authority in a place of great security, he is now telling to a bunch of uh, Jewish leaders who are saying to him, Jesus, you don't know who you are. You've got an ego problem here. You're just a kid growing up around, uh, around the rest of us. This idea that you think you came down from heaven, what has gotten into you? Jesus says, well, let me make the you know, a little more difficult for you than, than that. His answer is not, well, let me explain to you very carefully, because if I can argue you into the kingdom, then, then it's going to all work fine. He says, no, you don't even, you're, you're not going to understand anything, because my Father is going to teach. And unless he teaches, unless he, he directly gives you the word, you're not coming to him. So Jesus pokes them, verse 45, therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Everyone who has learned and comes, uh, learned from the Father comes to me. No one has seen the Father except Jesus who came from heaven, verse 46. And so then he says in verse, seven, verse 47, my translation reads, most assuredly, that again is this vow-taking authority of Christ, amen, amen, he says, amen, amen, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. They're not believing. They're not believing. And all that means, uh, and all that that means is that they have not been given by the Father to the Son. Jesus says the problem is the Father has not given you to me. The problem is not that, you haven't, that I haven't given a good enough argument. I haven't answered all your questions. The problem is the Father has not given you to me. This is hard teaching. It looks, like, it looks like if God is going to give some to Christ and others not to Christ, that somehow that's not fair. How could it be fair for him to give knowledge to one person and not to another person? Shouldn't there be equal opportunity? But when we start thinking about this, we're not, when, when, you, when we think that way, and it's natural for us to think that way, we're not being very careful with our theology because, frankly, you do not want to pl- God to play fair. That's the last thing we want is for God to play fair. What is fair? Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. You want justice? You want fairness? Fairness is God sending everyone into eternal condemnation. Fairness is God judging you rightly according to his holiness, according to his law, and he knows every thought, every word, every deed, every intention of your heart, and a holy God will not have fellowship in any way with you or with me or anyone else, not out of fairness, but out of mercy. And only from, only from his mercy will he draw anyone to himself. Grace is not owed to all mankind. And grace is not owed equally to all mankind either. 
And when you're hit with that idea, it feels very black, very oppressive, and very dark. But when you receive that teaching, when God opens your eyes, your heart to that teaching, when he takes what Jesus is saying and he places that by his spirit in your heart, in your spirit, suddenly you will be amazed at the power of his grace and mercy, at the light that reveals himself in, out of utter darkness. And it begins to shine in your heart and you begin to see God's grace and that you don't deserve it and that nobody here deserves it, and that he's just pouring his grace out like an abundant river over and over and over again, all over mankind, all over the nations. And you begin to get hope for maybe those who have not yet received his grace, who have not yet believed in him. God, be merciful. Don't say, God, be fair. (laughs) Don't say, be merciful, as you were with me. Be merciful, God. He hears those prayers. He works in and through those prayers. And, 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 and imagine, if it were not that way, if he were not sovereign, if it was not in his place to change someone else, someone's heart, then your prayers would do nothing. Your arguments would do nothing. But God, who is rich in mercy, uses your prayers, uses your words, uses your actions, And in all of your imperfect life, he accomplishes perfect things. But it was God who does it. And it's all to the glory of God in the end. In the end, what we will see is that God is the one who is worthy of all praise for the salvation of those to whom he is called, to those whom he has drawn to himself. Do you trust that God? Or do you really want, do you really want to have God... um, be you? (laughs) Or will you trust the glorious, merciful Father who sent his Son, who loved the world, John 3, 16, sent his Son so that everyone who believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life? Jesus begins um, to, he returns now to his original argument. He says a second time now, I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life, verse 48. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. So he says, I'm the bread of life. But then comes this end. He gives this wonderful invitation. Come and take and eat. But then he, he just pokes them again in the end of this in the end of this passage, verse 51, he says, And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. My flesh? What? What? He says, I, I'm the bread of life. I'm better than the manna. Okay, I'm kind of dealing with that, the Jews say. Maybe you're better than that manna bread. He says, they all died. Yeah, okay, I, yep, that's right. Psalm 95 warns us to not have the same kind of lack of faith that, the, that those in the wilderness had. So you're Jew, you're thinking that through. I get that. So you're better bread, yeah. And Jesus said, and I am the bread of life, and I give, I'll give my flesh. You can just see him go, ah, right? Well, Understandably, the Jews were mystified by this claim of his eating flesh. 
And so it says in verse 52, not just that they were murmuring, but the word actually there is that they were complaining, disputing violently among themselves. We see in the in Jewish literature, and we see in, in the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, that you know, they grab the dust and they throw it up in the air and they rend their garments. You can just imagine what, what kind of arguing and disputing now is going. They're angry. They are angry at what he is saying. And so Jesus stops and says, now everybody settle down, settle down. Let me explain it all to you so that it's not quite so offensive, right? That's what he does. I, I don't want to offend anybody here, right? That's what Jesus says. No, that's not what Jesus does at all. He turns up the heat, he leans into it, and goads them on. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Verse 54. Okay. He reiterates these apparently abhorrent practices without apology. Verse 55. Just continues on. For my flesh is true food, or the true food, or food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. Then verse 57 and 58, as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead. He who eats this bread will live forever. Now you have to, you have to remember the timing of all of this. This is long before Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper. There's, there's, there's no recording of any kind of language like this beforehand by Christ to his disciples. Okay? So we oftentimes, we are quick, we are quick to go, oh, I know what he's talking about. He's talking about this, right? That's what he's talking about. Right? But there's a problem with that. There's a problem with immediately taking this as discussing the uh, ritual of the Lord's Supper, and this section, this section right here, has, is, is one of the most debated of Jesus' discourses. Because the language of eating his flesh and drinking his blood, for us, certainly has Eucharistic Lord's Supper language. So we quickly say, think to ourselves, we didn't really mean that we eat his body. It doesn't really mean that we drink his blood. right? So we, we're thinking that. But, but there's a couple of big problems with that. First of all, as I mentioned, this is spoken long before Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, and so this language that he would be using would be mystifying at best and definitely offensive, as we can see in the next verses. Um, and, and so many commentators, many, uh, and this is, this is a debate that's gone on for centuries, would say this has nothing to do with the Lord's Supper because it wouldn't be right for Jesus to bring this in without any kind of context. He wouldn't do that, or would he? And then second, to take it on the face of it also proves too much. If we believe that he's talking about the communion, then look again at verse 53. Look again at verse 53. Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh, right there at the table, eat the flesh of the Son of God and drink his blood, you have no life in you. And so what would that prove? See, it proves too much. It proves that if he's speaking about the Lord's Supper straight up, that if you haven't taken communion, you ain't going to heaven. Okay? So that's where this debate goes. How do we, how, what are we to do with this? But think of it this way. And, and this is the way Calvin, um, in his institutes, begins to talk about trying to kind, uh, come to an understanding of, of partaking of the Lord and partaking of him by the Spirit, but not 
not that, that his flesh or blood or that, the, that these elements are actually transformed or transubstantiated into something else. And understanding that at the same time, you are truly partaking of his flesh and blood in, in, in a ritual, but not in the elements. Um, what, the, what, the way he handles it, and I'm just paraphrasing him, I'm kind of summarizing him here is this way. First, we do know that Jesus did say other things that John tells us that the disciples didn't understand until after his resurrection. That whole section um, of him uh, saying, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up again, remember? Let me read to you John 2. Jesus answered and said to them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews said, kind of the same way, you're out of your mind. It was, it's taken us 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. And then verse 22 says this, Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. It wasn't until after he was raised from the dead that they went, oh, that's what he meant. That, that's what he was pointing to, you see? So Jesus did these things. In fact, the prophets would do these things all the time. Prophets would give prophecies that were not clear, or at least not clear enough, until the event happened. And then when the event happened that they had prophesied, oh, everybody sees, oh, that was the word of the Lord. That was what he meant, right? So that's, this is prophetic language in some sense that Jesus is giving here. But second, the sacrament of communion is to come with the word, okay? Actually, it comes after the word. We are to proclaim the word, and then we are to also give the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. So word and then sacrament. So this discourse is not a sermon on the Lord's Supper. Rather, the Lord's Supper, once initiated by Jesus, so this is this word, this this sermon that he gives, but then uh, months later, he initiates the Lord's Supper, and the Lord's Supper, once initiated by him, is a ritual laying out the truth of the sermon whereby the Spirit seals this sermon, this word, these promises in us. The Lord's Supper is a sign and seal of what the Lord promises to us, what the Lord promises to give us. So Jesus took the most provocative and controversial sermon and turned it into a perpetual memorial to be observed and imitated every week in the Lord's Day worship service. (laughs) He's goading you. He's poking you. Figure this out. Think about this. Dwell upon this. This is my memorial. I want you considering over and over again what I have to say in the preached word. I want you to bring it with you as you come to the table, and I want you to allow the Spirit himself to place my word, my son's flesh and blood, into you. Seal you in it. As signs and seals of his great promise and his great ongoing work, his great sanctifying work in your life. So this goading, he's goading us along to ponder and wrestle with coming to Jesus for who he is and not simply for the other things he gives. In fact, I think that is key to preaching the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is preaching his death, burial, and resurrection his ascension and reign at the right hand of God the Father for the forgiveness of sins, and a call that you are to come, believe, repent, and find forgiveness, find eternal and everlasting life. But you are to come to him as the Son of God, and then you receive these things, these good and wonderful and eternal gifts from him. So this happens each Lord's Day, preaching, goading with the word, and then, uh, and then sealing that in communion. One uh, uh, 
one Puritan, I was just actually just reading him this morning, was talking about the, the importance of preaching being like the angel who takes the coal and, um, and then gives, put, places the coal in the lips of serv- the servant Isaiah, which should have just destroyed his ability to preach or, or to speak, but instead cleanses him with the ability to preach the word. And then the preacher is to do the same. The preacher is to preach in such a way that the words hurt, that the words cut, that the words provoke, that the words offend, so that God, by his spirit, then takes you and rearranges your mess, all of our messes, and makes us more right, makes us spiritually sit up straight, makes, us, um, makes our eyes and, and minds and hearts more aware of who he is and how he is working through our lives. But if, if preaching is done right, then what preaching does is bother you, bothers you. Because Jesus is saying, no, not this way, that way. No, not like that, like this. No, look again at what my word says. That's what is to happen for us. And then, have you been rearranged? Have you been put back together? Have you been straightened up? He says, now come and dine with me in peace. Let me seal that work in you and send you on your way. That's what he's doing. So we come to Jesus only when the Father gives us to Jesus. He is from somewhere else the one who has come down from heaven. We can't argue ourselves into heaven. We can't argue ourselves to the one who has come down from heaven. He has to come to us. He is the son of God. And that knowledge that he is the son of God doesn't come from your brain. It comes when and only when God brings it down to you. Again, look at verses 43 and four, through 45. Jesus therefore answered and said, stop your complaining, stop your disputing, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught by God. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. This is hard to swallow. The knowledge of God is a gift and not something you come up with by yourself. This is the gift of faith, something you cannot get within yourself. And the only way we come to believe is if we are goaded, poked, and bothered by God, by the word and the words of Jesus, sweet Jesus, meek and mild, who says in Revelation, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten, therefore be zealous and repent. I think it should go on a poster with a little basket of kittens. I love you, he says. I love you, and so I rebuke and chasten you. Be zealous and repent. This is part of what it means when the psalmist writes in Psalm 23, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Well, rods and staffs used by shepherds were used to knock out the wolves and the enemies coming. They were to knock the sheep around also. No, over here. No, over there. Let's get over. We're going to green pastures. I don't want to go to green pastures. We're going. Come on, let's go. (laughs) That's what rods and staffs do. Okay? And how's that a comfort? Well, it's a comfort once you get there. It's a comfort once you realize, oh, you know what? God was right, and God is good, and here I am now. And it is the ongoing work of sanctification. Psalm 119, it is good for me that I have been afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. He goads you to bring you to himself, just as he did to Saul on the road to Damascus, as As Saul journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. 
And then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Just like Paul, he uses this goad, a pointed stick that you use to to move an animal along, get moving. The the animal doesn't like it. That's why he gets moving, okay? And that's what uh, God was doing. That's why God was was doing to Paul. And he says, you're not not enjoying this, are you? (laughs) You're not enjoying the fact that you've been trying to live this self-righteous life, so self-righteous that you're even persecuting my children, and in doing so, you're persecuting me. You're such a successful religious Pharisee, and you know, you know it's not satisfying, don't you? You know it's not delivering you, don't you? You know your system of belief doesn't work down in your heart, don't you? That's why I'm goading you. That's why I'm telling you over and over again, no, move on, move on. I'm bringing you somewhere else, or you can think of it as the Father, bringing you to the Son. And if you're receiving his word from the Father, taught by God, then the word is going to bother you. It's going to mess with you, and it's going to change you. And then you come to the table, and there you receive the signs and seals of the work of the word, the goading of Jesus. The point you find is that he always wanted to give you himself. He wanted to give you himself. That same Paul would write these words in an epistle he would write from prison, not sure if he was going to live because he was a follower of Jesus Christ. Philippians 3, 7 through 11, but what things were gained to me, these things I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things and count them is rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead." Let us pray. Father in heaven, you have given us to your son. We are his inheritance. And you have given us Jesus now in the preaching of your word. Well, then, Father, grant us all the merciful gift of faith. Grant us all the merciful gift of faith. Faith in the Son of God who loved us and died for us and grants us eternal, everlasting life. We would have nothing less. For we ask it in the glorious powerful and sweet name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.